Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, this week we've had our annual Shepherds 360 conference on the theme of ethics, and it's been a fantastic time. I actually met quite a few new friends and a few regular listeners that I'd known before, so I just really enjoyed that time. But over the last couple of weeks, I've been pretty busy, so this episode, we're doing something a little different, and I'm actually going to include my presentation that I did on the Mosaic Law and Ethics and how we as Christians could use the Mosaic Law to help make ethical decisions of right and wrong. And so if you've been to the session, if you heard it, sorry, you can skip this podcast or you can listen to it again. And I did have a PowerPoint for it, and I'm attaching that in the show notes. If you want to access and be able to follow along on the PowerPoint or see that, you are welcome to do so. Hope you enjoy. Well, the topic before us, as you no doubt know since you're here, hopefully nobody's here incorrectly, uh, is using the Mosaic Law in ethics. Okay? And... This is a very hot topic, and it has been a hot topic since Acts 15, okay? So it doesn't really go out of style. This is one of those things where whenever you're in a church in any country, in any part of the world, you are essentially left with uh, the first five books of the Bible, often called the law. We're going to zero in on the Mosaic law sections of that, and you're faced with how are we to use this and does it differ in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. So as a Christian today, it really comes down to how do we understand the law and how do we use it in making decisions or should we use it in making decisions? Uh, I would argue that there is a way to use it. So don't worry. Otherwise, I could just say no and then we could all leave. But uh, I think there is a way we can use it. Now, in order to uh, approach this subject, I think we first need to ask, what does the Bible say about the law? And I think it's helpful to draw some comparisons and contrasts to how the Bible talks about it. So the first thing that the Bible says about the law itself is that the law is good and useful. Okay, so both of those are used in many different passages. Both Old Testament and New Testament speaks about the law positively. All right, so it's not as if, and this is sometimes a misconception we get in different churches where I remember growing up, for example, hearing somebody preach one time saying, well, the only thing that you need to worry about in the Old Testament is just read that and be thankful you're not there. You know, it's like, okay, the Bible doesn't talk that way, though. Sometimes we do. But look at how the Old Testament saints spoke. Psalm 119, 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I mean, would we speak about that with, and by the way, the word for testimonies there is a synonym for law, okay? So the New Testament also uses the same kind of uh, terminology. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good, right? This, this is the way Old Testament and New Testament habitually talk about the law. So it's good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, uh, and I love the law. Okay, so this is, this is something that, that is marking both Old and New Testament. The law is good, and it's useful. But that's not the only thing the Bible says about it, right? So the Bible actually says some other things, 
and it says that the law is abolished. That may be surprising to some of us, but Scripture is very clear about this as well. So Romans 6.14 says, You are not under the law, but under grace. Similarly, in Galatians 5.18, Paul writes, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then Romans 7.16, and this was just a few verses uh, prior to Paul saying that the law is good and righteous and holy. In 7 verse 6, he says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So there is a very big theme in Paul of not being under the law, uh, living in a new way under the Spirit. And of course, Paul writes in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law. So you have these, these themes, these, these discussions in Paul where there seem to be some harsh statements against the law, about the law being done away with, about the believer living under grace, not under the law. Now we go further in Paul's writings, and we can see that when you're looking at even how Paul formulates arguments, he does so in a way which assumes the law is no longer normative or binding on the believer. So Romans 14 and 15 is probably the most well-known section here. You basically have, if you if you remember your Old Testaments, you have law which specifically forbids eating certain foods. Okay, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. These are the very common texts that are appealed to. But in Romans 14, 2, it indicates that only weak believers obey those stipulations. So in other words, in the Old Testament law, it's very clear, these are the certain things that you can and cannot eat. But then when Paul's talking about it, he says, listen, it's the weak believer that believes that there are certain foods they can and cannot eat, right? The weak individual does that, which is obviously a major contrast to the Old Testament. Now, another example of this would be the discussion of circumcision and the Sabbath, which are both at the heart of Israel covenants, and both are deemed as obsolete in the New Testament, as a requirement for following God, right? So we are told in Romans 4, 1 Corinthians 7, Galatians 5, and Galatians 6, that circumcision is no longer necessary for those who want to follow God. In the Old Testament, if you wanted full access, in fact, Exodus 12 talks about how if you wanted full access as a foreigner to the Passover meal, you needed to be circumcised. But this is no longer a requirement Similarly, the Sabbath, which is the heart of the Mosaic Covenant, is no longer necessary. We see that in Romans 14, 5, and 6. It talks about how one man deems one day uh, as more important than another. Another deems all days as the same, right? And, And Paul says it's not as if one is correct. They both do that before God. And we, we allow, uh, the word he uses is, Uh, Before his own master, he rises or falls. In other words, this is not an issue in the new covenant. The Sabbath is no longer binding as the special day. Colossians 2 is a very similar uh, mindset with that, where he says that the the Sabbath uh, is a type and shadow of that which is to come in Christ. So, again, we have not just 
discussions of how the, the believer is no longer under the law, but actual practical application in the New Testament, examples where the believers are not bound by those stipulations. So how, how do we kind of put these themes together? On the one hand, Scripture talks about how the law is good and useful, but then at the same time, the believer is not under the law. Well, I would, I would kind of sum, make a summary statement like this. So in order to understand and give us a trajectory of how, how we can still use the law, we need to understand that the law was inherently tied to Mosaic legislation as part of God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. Uh, it's sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant. In essence, what, what we need to understand is the Mosaic Law is tied to the Mosaic Covenant. So Mosaic Law, Mosaic Covenant, they go hand in hand. Where one goes, so goes the other, right? So when you compare and contrast Scripture, understand what is being talked about, Scripture is clear that the New Covenant has replaced the Mosaic Covenant, all right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 is a major passage on this, but Hebrews has much to say about it as well, about how the New Covenant has replaced the Mosaic. And so if the New Covenant has replaced the Mosaic Covenant, then I would argue that the laws that make up that covenant also have been done away with. And in, in, firmer, in, in further affirmation of this, we could look to passages like James 2.10 or Galatians 5.3, which talk about the law standing as a unit, right? Now, this is a really important foundational thought, which we'll come back to. But the law, is, it stands or falls as a unit. Uh, I don't think you can break it up, but we will talk about that uh, as we go. So if the Mosaic Covenant has been abrogated, if it's been done away with, if, if the Mosaic Covenant uh, has been done away with, then the entire law also has been abrogated, okay? But, like I said, doesn't, does that just mean then, okay, how do we use the Mosaic Law to formulate ethics? How, I mean, the session's over then, isn't it? I mean, are we done or what do we do then? And so that obviously leads to the question, what is the believer's relationship to the law? And so specifically, when we think about these things, why does it seem some laws retain their authority? Why is it that, that even Paul or Jesus quote the law authoritatively, right? These, this, this also happens in the New Testament. So how can Paul quote the law authoritatively saying, you should have known that this is the case because the law says this? And how can the law then help us make ethical choices? Because I do think that there is a way to do this, and it does seem that Paul and Jesus, James, and others are using the law in order to formulate ethical decisions. Okay, so I would, uh, I, I will advocate for one view, but the thing we need to remember is that there's multiple approaches to this. So I'm going to survey those really quickly here for sake of time. We won't be able to go into as much detail on this. But there are four major views of the believer's relationship to the law. Now, there are more than this, but these are the four major views, okay? So the first one, which I would venture most of you are really familiar with, would be what's known as the traditional Reformed approach, or it's sometimes called the tripartite division of the law. And this is the, uh, you, you will no doubt recognize the terminology when, you, when I say that the law is categorized as moral, civil, and ceremonial, 
Okay, this is the typical approach for the traditional reform tripartite approach is that you divide the law into three categories or branches, the moral, civil, and ceremonial. And those categories tell you which laws are then applicable. So moral law, like for example, people would say, well, the moral law is very clear, you shall not murder, right? So that's a moral law that's binding for all of time. And so we understand that that remains binding. But there are civil laws which govern Israel's existence as a nation. Those would be laws like uh, perhaps cities of refuge or things like that. Obviously, when you read through the city of refuge stipulations, uh, it would be very hard for us to specifically apply making a city of refuge on the western side and eastern side of the Jordan River, right? Because that's a geographical context for the civil institution of Israel governing them as a nation. Uh, Some of the calendar laws would fall under that stipulation. So those are civil laws, civil laws which govern Israel as a civil entity. Then you'd also have ceremonial laws which deal with the sacrifices and the offerings and the cultic activity. I don't mean cultic in a negative sense. I mean cultic in, in a worship organization sense. So in this viewpoint... Usually, it's described as the moral law remains binding upon a believer, but the civil and ceremonial laws are done away with. Now, that is, that is a, a very common viewpoint. It's what I grew up hearing a lot. And it makes one of the reasons it's so appealing is because if you have somebody say to you, well, why do you say that you... The laws against homosexuality reveal God's will, but you don't say that eating shellfish or, you know, these other laws are just as authoritative. You're just picking and choosing. And so it's just really easy to say, well, this is moral, that's uh, ceremonial. And boom, you're just off to, you can just say that and they're left speechless and you win the Twitter war. Um, so it's really easy to just say that. But the problem is that, that these, categor- these categories are really only retroactive. They don't actually give you a paradigm to determine what's moral or what's civil or what's ceremonial. They're really just descriptive after you've already determined which laws are still binding. So it really fails on that approach just on a pragmatic level. But even further, the, like I mentioned with James and Galatians, how Paul and James refer to the law, they refer to it as a unit, as an entirety, right? So you're, you're using an extra biblical categorization, which the Bible doesn't recognize and that's very problematic although there i would say if you're interested saying well is does anyone make a good case for this well the best approach i've ever seen would be by walt kaiser he he really tries to argue for this approach uh and he argues from jesus's statement that there are some commandments that are more weighty than others but that's far different than saying that there are three categories of law and some are moral, some are civil, some are ceremonial. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is talking about. Plus, you have this, I, no, nobody would say that all laws are the same, uh, value or weight, right? In fact, you can even see that by the, by the example of the death penalty being attached to certain laws, whereas it's not attached to other laws. So we understand that there are certain laws that carry more significant consequences. By the way, that's also how sometimes they try to determine which laws are moral, civil, and ceremonial, is sometimes people will say, well, if the death penalty is attached to it, that's a moral law. 
But there are problems with that as well, because what about the Sabbath? Because the death penalty is attached to the Sabbath violation. And yet we know from the New Testament that that has been abrogated very clearly. Now, so I think that there are some problems with this. Holistically, there's not really a, a place in Scripture to defend this. It's a very logical approach. It became very popular during the Reformation. Thus, it's known as the traditional Reformed approach. But you can probably trace it back to Aquinas. Uh, he's probably the one who, who formulated this first. Uh, but people will try to trace it back further. But I, I've done the study, looked through it, and I don't, I don't think you can find it anywhere uh, before Aquinas. So this is, this is a, an attempt to solve this difficulty. But I think it, it really suffers from explanatory power consistency, and also just biblical uh, faithfulness to how the Bible talks about these things. So another attempt at this would be theonomy. Uh, And Christian Reconstructionism is often um, a, they're not the exact same thing, uh, but they are so close in identity, most people can't tell them apart. Christian Reconstructionism uh, basically is the application of theonomy, where the, the main difference between this view and the, the view prior is that theonomy would say not only are the, is the moral law binding, but also the civil law as well. The ceremonial law has been done away with, but the two categories remain binding, the, the, the moral law and the civil law. Theonomy would view the law as binding upon on, on every nation. Every nation, then that's where you get Christian Reconstructionism, is that in the in the mid-20th century, you had this Christian Reconstruction movement where you had individuals uh, like Rush Dooney and Gary North and others who really promoted this, this application of law to present-day American society. And, you know, it's interesting because some of these forefathers of the Christian Reconstructionist movement, they actually held to a very strict application of law, so much so that that they even held to the dietary restrictions of the law, for example. So that's one case where I I look at this kind of viewpoint and I say, well, if your viewpoint is advocating such a fidelity to the law where you're clearly going beyond what the New Testament says, because the New Testament is very clear, dietary restrictions are are not in place, uh, Sabbath not in place. I mean, that's very, even in our churches, we meet on Sunday, not on Saturday, so Nobody is, is holding to the Sabbath with regard to that. Now, they would obviously argue it's changed from Saturday to Sunday, right? But I would argue that Scripture says no day, uh, one over another. Uh, but I still think we should worship on Sunday. That's a dis- discussion for another time. I'm just saying as far as law, the law doesn't say you are mandated to do that, right? Okay. Now, so the same critiques of the tripartite division also apply to the theonomic discussion here. But And there's, there's so much more to go in there, and I hate to say this, but if you want more on, on theonomy, I did do like a three-part series on my podcast where I go into more detail on that. Uh, I only say that because, you know, I can't say everything that I would like to say on, on a lot of these things. But this is just another attempt to, to relate the believer to the law that I think falls short to the full biblical paradigm, Right. And you're interested in getting to the real one anyway, right? So that's why you're here. But uh, another, another approach is the Lutheran approach. And there's, there's a lot more uh, in common that I would have with this viewpoint. Uh, in fact, uh, Doug Moo, Douglas Moo, maybe some of you have heard of his name. He's a, he's, a, he's a scholar who would hold to 
not not quite the strict Lutheran, but I guess I think he's even described it himself as being neo-Lutheran with regard to the fact that the the Old Testament law is done away with, and we are now under the law of Christ, and so the New Testament is the priority, and and that's what we hold to. Uh, the 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 New Testament law of Christ is our binding authority, and that's there's a lot of similarities between between that and what I would espouse. I would just make a couple distinctions. And so that's where I would invoke a, a idea called principalism, okay? So principalism is the fourth major view, and I would advocate this as being the most consistent application of the law to our, to our current uh, context. All right, so what are the foundations of principalism? If we're, if we're going to try to try to understand how to use principalism and, and why this is uh, applicable, you need to know a couple things. First of all, the law reflects the character of God. Now, not every law reflects God's character, but the law holistically does. Okay, so that's a distinction to make, and this is why some laws seem like we are applying them today while other laws don't, is because the law as a unit reflects the character of God in specific ways, but not every law is the same. Now, I'm not, now that's different than saying that the laws are moral, civil, and ceremonial. I would argue that the entirety of the law rises and falls by itself as part of the Mosaic Covenant. But we can argue that within that law code, there are differences in the laws that give us insight into who God is in different ways, right? And this is important because when you're reading the narrative of Scripture, I think that this is a big, important theme, is to, is to recognize the law in its narrative context. So, in other words, when God gives the law, he's, he's not just dropping it out of nowhere. He's doing it in the midst of redeeming a people from Egypt and making a covenant with them having this relationship. And so it's one thing to to have the narratives show you that God is holy and and he has destroyed the Egyptians because they've opposed his people and he's affecting his will. Yes, absolutely. But there's there's something about the genre of law where you recognize, yes, you need to know God is holy, but you need to know how holy he is. He's he's so holy that if you bury your father, you must recognize yourself as incapable of worshiping God now because God can't be associated with death. He is the author of life. And so if you touch a a dead body, now you must go through this tremendous ritual and sacrifice to cleanse yourself and become uh, able to worship God again. So the law teaches us things about God. It reflects something about the character of God that we wouldn't be able to just see as easily in narrative. But the law also reflects God's created design, right? So this is where even the, the issues of why we, why we are more prone to obey laws about uh, say, prohibitions against homosexuality or bestiality or incest or things like that is that those laws, by their very nature, deal with God's specific created design of marriage and family, whereas other laws are dealing with for example, your dietary restrictions, those are not as directly uh, connected to God's created design, right? So it's, it's just very basic if you, if you know kind of the paradigm that you're looking for, how, how this will work. So the laws reflect God's character. They reflect God's created design. And they also have a temporal application to a specific context, which Israel was experiencing. Uh, in fact, just today, I was talking to somebody about 
um, the difference between, uh, they, they were asking me if I, if I thought tattoos were okay, because the law forbids tattoos, right? And, and tattoos are giving, I don't have a tattoo in here, I might have to, because tattoos are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, well, and one of the things that I was explaining is that this is a part of the cultural context with, with the tattoos, right? Um, and the same thing about the shaved heads, right? Uh, I mean, you know, is it wrong to shave your head? You know, is, is that wrong? Should, should nobody shave their head? And I think uh, most scholars are in agreement that the, the shaved head and the tattoos, the marks on the body, uh, is indicative of these uh, outside of Israel cultic concerns of worshiping foreign deities, right? And so we can recognize that that does have a, have a contextual uh, application to what Israel is going through. Certainly, we can, we can go through that and understand that Israel finds themselves in a time and a place where specific laws are occurring. I would say the dietary restrictions are actually very similar to that. And the reason you might ask, well, what is, why is Israel going through these dietary concerns? Well, I would say one of the very just practical reasons God gives Israel the dietary restrictions is to keep them an isolated nation during their growing period, right? If you think about uh, when Israel goes into Egypt, what, one of the things that's commonly repeated at the end of uh, Genesis is that the Israelites were an abomination to the Egyptians because of how they looked, how, what they did as shepherds, and how they ate. And so even when, when Joseph has his brothers, it said the Egyptians would not eat with them, right? And so food is a great divider. In our, in our day and age, we can just be like, oh, yeah, you can have that, and I'll swing by McDonald's and grab that. No, but in the ancient world, everyone ate the same thing. And so if you have dietary restrictions that differentiate, you're not going to eat together. And therefore, you're going to be isolated. You're not going to get cozy with a certain young lady and intermarry to their family, you know? So that's part of the cultural context in which... Israel existed. But but the law still, as a holistic unit, remains applicable, not as a binding authority upon us, but as a, I call it a didactic lens, which basically just means it, it teaches us about God and his creation, right? And so the law then, uh, Brian Rossner, I'll put a slide up at the end where I give you some recommended resources, but <clears throat> Brian Rossner uh, calls this the transition of the law to wisdom literature. So the law ceases to be life-governing every day, every, everything that you do is, is being mandated by law now to being guiding principles of wisdom. And I, I really like that picture. I think it's, it's well-stated, and I think it's very consistent with how we even see the New Testament apply the law. Uh, well, let me just say one example of that because I think it's helpful to, to hear that. So, for example, Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 5 uses the law. He quotes it to, to argue why, why incest is wrong. He says, it's reported among you that a, that a man has his father's wife. And he uses the same Levitical phrase there. But he doesn't argue that they should put him to death as per the Mosaic law. He says, just remove him from the church. And so he's using the law as a guiding principle about what's right and what's wrong there, but he's also changing it. He, he's also saying, but listen, you are not to put him to death. You just remove him so that the leaven doesn't leaven the whole lump. So the three steps here, uh, so practically, how, how do you actually work this out? So there are three steps that I would uh, advocate for how we work through the principles and apply them. So number one 
you determine the original meaning, significance, and purpose of the law in question. So you're, you're reading in your devotions or as you're reading through the law or whatever, and you say, okay, what, what does this law mean? Um, what does it signify? What is it uh, portraying here? And what is its purpose? Like, why did God give this? What is, it, what is it saying to do? And why did God give it? Then you trace the significance of that law and you draw connections from law structure. Number two is going to be the most important one, and I'm going to give you an illustration of how this works in just a, in just a moment. But you, you look at the law, and you trace that, that theme, the application behind that law, through Scripture. You, you trace, okay, is this something that just is out of nowhere, or is there, is there a foundation to this law? How do we, how do we draw this? I'll, I'll come back to this as an example, but just to give your mind something to latch onto for number two. For example, tracing the theological significance, why is it that God says, uh, thou shalt not murder, for example? It's because man is made in God's image, right? So there's a, there's a theological theme, a significance behind that law that we can trace, right? So then number three, determine the appropriate application and implication of the theology of that law. So the first two is you're determining, okay, what does the law say? Why does it say it that way? And then let's look theologically, what is the foundation of this? Uh, how does this apply in the different scenarios? And then the third step is taking what you've gleaned from that process and applying it to the present day context. And it might look exactly the same, or it might look different depending on other factors of context. Like for example, hopefully this doesn't, well, I may offend some of you with this statement, but I, <laughs> Ah, it's pretty much un- indefensible. I'll just say it. I may surprise you that you are not Israel, okay? <laughs> Hopefully, you know, yeah, you don't live in the land of Israel. You, you may argue you're the spiritual Israel, and we can go fight out back. But it's fine. You know, this is just one of those things where um, the context is different for us, and we can, we can find a way to apply that. So for number two, when I said trace the theological significance of law and draw connections from law structure— that's this next part. So the law structure is really helpful to understand here. So when you think about how the law is structured, it's been observed by many scholars that there are these thematic connections between other ancient Near Eastern covenant treaties and how the book of the law in Exodus and how the book of Deuteronomy is formulated. Right. So typically in ancient Near Eastern covenants, you have some sort of historical prologue, a preamble, and then you have general foundational stipulations. Uh, and then you have as further elucidations of that or explanations, you have these specific stipulations. And then you have provisions for reading or sometimes it's called the witnesses to the covenant. And then you have blessings and curses. Right. So in, in many of these ancient Near Eastern structures, you have individuals or covenants that are made with individuals and they give the stipulations of the covenant, general, specific, and then curses saying, if you don't do this, then this will happen to you. You will lose your mother's oxen. You will do all these things and curse be you among people. So Exodus gives us an example of that to, uh, in 19 through 24. But Deuteronomy gives us even a better example of that. The entire book essentially follows this outline. And so you have in Deuteronomy, the preamble, the historical prologue, general stipulations, specific stipulations, blessings and curses, and then the witnesses uh, to that. Now, one of the things to keep in mind for this is that with this structure, 
Uh, one of the things that I think is helpful as an illustration to, to correlate how this works is that the general stipulations are the general foundational guidelines for the, for the nation, for the covenant, and the specific stipulations are how that applies to daily life. So illustration would be uh, with the United States, the Constitution, okay? It used to be held that the Constitution was what was governing America, okay? So ideally and theoretically, the Constitution of the United States is supposed to give the general guidance for how uh, the, the coalition of states governs themselves, right? So the Constitution gives us that, but there's a lot of things that can happen and times change. I mean, so how are we supposed to apply the Constitution to daily life? Well, that's where you have case law then. So it's the United States uh, justices and, and court uh, adherents and legislators which are supposed to apply the Constitution to daily life, okay? And so that's typically how it's supposed to work is that the judge sits down and says, okay, well, the Constitution says this, and so I think that that is uh, applying according to the intent of the Constitution to this situation this way. That's how it's supposed to work. And so that's how, too, law works. So the general stipulations, both in Deuteronomy as well as in Exodus, would match with what you know as the Ten Commandments. All right? Now, that's one of the reasons why people say, well, the Ten Commandments are the moral law. It's always binding. Well, the Sabbath is one of those, and we've already talked about that. Uh, the Sabbath is definitely very important to Israelite law, and we could do a whole... Uh, in fact, I just posted a blog post on the Sabbath today. So if you want more on the Sabbath, you can read that. Because uh, I was thinking, well, we should totally talk about that. But then I remembered that we don't have any time to talk about all this stuff. <laughs> so uh, that's definitely something that's worthwhile thinking about, for sure. But uh, the, it's interesting that in the, in the Bible, it's the Ten Commandments as we know them are more often referred to as the Ten Words. The Ten Words. And you say, well, does it matter? Why would they call it the ten words? Well, because it's this understanding that, that it's not just a commandment. It's a rule of life. It's a guiding principle. So it's more than just a commandment or a prohibition. It's, it's, it's a word that guides us. It's, it's, a, it's a foundational principle. All right, so I've given you a lot of information. Let's try to work through a case study. All right, so a case study to, to show how this would work. Okay, just on a... Uh, in, in other words, now that I've given you all this information, this, this uh, you know, fire, fire hydrant of information, how in the world would we apply this if you're reading through law? So I'll give you a couple pretty easy illustrations, or at least one really easy illustration. We'll see how much time we have. So Deuteronomy 22.8 says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So the parapet is basically a fence around your roof. Now, part of the process here, remember, you're, you're determining the original meaning and significance of this law. And you might say to yourself, why would you build a fence around your roof? Well, the roofs are, were a lot different than it was basically an extra room of your house, right? So our houses are typically the angled roofs. And if you have parties on the house roof of your tilted roof, you all die. So... It's one of those things where we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Our, our roof is just a roof now. Um, closest you could get to be trying to make your attic an extra room or something. But it doesn't really work in North Carolina. But anyway, uh, you have that obviously being a major contextual difference. 
But you could understand that if you were running around on your roof back in the ancient Near East, you might be liable to fall off. So let's make a fence, a parapet around the roof, so that we can protect other individuals. Now, let's think through the structure of the law. Where does Deuteronomy 22.8 fall into this category? So Deuteronomy 22.8 falls within the specific stipulations. The specific stipulations of Deuteronomy, I believe, are a reflection of the general stipulations that are given earlier. So this is a, a chart of kind of how I've laid this out. This largely follows... Uh, Eugene Merrill, uh, in his New American Commentary, follows, follows uh, a very similar pattern. And so what you see is that the specific stipulations, as you walk, walk through Deuteronomy 12 through 26 and trace all of these, these categories and subjects of laws, is that they reflect these general principles that are given in the Ten Commandments. And it's really kind of uh, cool. I'm trying to think of a better way to say it, but it's just really cool how that kind of works out. And so we can see that Deuteronomy 22.8, if, you, if you're walking through that, Deuteronomy 22.8 fits within the section from Deuteronomy 19 to 22.8, which deals with the section on do not murder. Okay. Now, one of the interesting things, this really struck home with me as I, was, uh, I did my dissertation partly on this. And one of the things that really struck home was I was reading um, some Jewish rabbis. And one of the things that they said, and I'd heard other people say this as well, but one of the things that was really helpful for me was they said, if you want to understand just the depth of the, of the Ten Commandments and what they're talking about, for the negatives, make them into a positive. And, and then you will know what, what the point of the commandment is, what the point of the word is in, in, their, in their understanding. And so you take something like do not murder. Well, that's pretty specific. But if you make that into a positive, What's the opposite of murdering somebody? Yeah, promoting life, valuing life, right? And so there are a lot of laws within the, this section that deal with the, the, the flourishing of life and promoting and protecting life, right? And so if we think of Deuteronomy 22.8 then, sure, we have a law that says make a fence around the roof. But why is that? Like, what, what is the principle? What's the principle? Remember, uh, I'm advocating principalism. What is the principle behind that? Well, structurally in Deuteronomy, it's actually related to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But you shall not murder isn't, isn't the, the only thing that that word or that commandment is dealing with. It's also promoting this idea of valuing life. And so... This structurally is already connected. And then as you examine that theme and that principle even further, why is it that you are to value life? Why is it that you're not supposed to murder? Why should you value life? Well, you can trace that all the way back to the creation principle of man being created in God's image, right? So it's very easy and very easy to argue about the binding nature of this principle about valuing life. Now, does that mean that I need to have a fence around my roof because, because obviously if, if you're following the train of thought here, you might say, well, the reason that you're putting a fence around your roof is because you're valuing life and man is created in God's image. All that still is true, right? Man is still created in God's image and we still understand that because man is created in God's image, that is a pre-law principle. That's a pre-law understanding. That's Genesis 1 to 3. That's not law. And so 
we understand that man is still in God's image. So wouldn't that mean then that we build the fence? But that's not that's that's where the disconnect is. The principle is in play, but how that applies to daily life could change. So maybe I don't build a fence around my roof. Although maybe I do. If if you're having parties on your roof, I encourage a fence. Um, but what about uh, what about a pool? If you have an in-ground pool or something like that, maybe you build a fence around that or have a pool cover to protect uh, from. I mean, obviously having young children, I would greatly appreciate that if I come over to your house. I would want the fence around the pool or the cover to to protect because it'd be so easy for a child to fall in there and and that's dangerous, right? So there are applications. I would say Deuteronomy 22.8 would be the application of that would be let's make sure that we are taking, that that our pool is taken care of, like that we, that we are not going to have any dangerous scenarios there. Or maybe uh, living in the great state of North Carolina, let's, let's make sure that our guns are locked up. Right, something like that, so that you know a kid wandering around won't find it. And so we we apply these things uh, in a wisdom-oriented way because all of mankind is created in God's image, and we are trying to apply that specific scenario. So, in other words, what we're doing is we're working, uh, whether you're working backwards from the specific case law, <clears throat> or whether you're working from the creation principle, you could actually go either way. Uh, and in, in this case, I started with Deuteronomy 22.8, and I went backwards saying, okay, let's think about the principles behind this, and then how we might apply that. Well, you could also go the other way and say, okay, because God, God has made humanity in his image, now what pro, uh, proper steps should we take in light of this? It, it impacts how we treat them, certainly. It impacts what kind of things that we're going to do with our lives to protect and value that life. And so we're, we're really valuing Genesis 1 to 3, how God has created the world, how he has implemented uh, his created order. That is often reflected very clearly in the Ten Commandments, even, even like the commandments about honoring your father and mother. Why is it that that's a commandment? It's not, God's not just coming up with something saying, well, you know what, I think we should probably have some structure and order there. No, God created the family unit in Genesis 2, right? And so in Genesis 2, we see that spelled out very specifically. So the need to honor father and mother, it goes beyond the commandment. It's not, we don't honor father and mother because it's a commandment. We honor the father and mother because it's built into the order of creation itself, right? And so the law helps us understand that. But I always tell people, I don't, it's, my life may look a lot like I'm obeying the Ten Commandments, but it's not because it's a Ten Commandment. It's because we're actually taking those principles from even further back and working through that. And, of course, the major exception to that would be the Sabbath. But I would say even in that, in that role, I'm actually observing the Sabbath because what I would say the purpose of the Sabbath isn't to rest or recuperate. I know there's debate on this, but I wouldn't say the Sabbath is to rest or recuperate. I would say the point of the Sabbath is to put yourself in a position and to take time out of your schedule to, to worship the Lord and to, to communicate with your time, your money, and your effort that God is your master. Okay, And so we can do that. It's kind of like the, the statement I always like to throw out there is, is show me your calendar and your checkbook, which nobody has a checkbook anymore and nobody uses a calendar anymore. So it's like, it's a worthless <laughs> statement. But show me those two archaic items and I will tell you who runs your life, you know? And that's the whole point of the Sabbath is that if God is in control of your calendar, the Sabbath, then he's in control of everything about you. 
And so I think that that still applies, but it just doesn't mean you take one day out of the week anymore. All right, so you might say, this sounds a little crazy, but I'm going to say that Jesus is on my side, okay? So Jesus, when he talks about this, Matthew 5, all right? So in Matthew 5, a lot of people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they, they see these statements. They say, now Jesus is doing something crazy new here. But he's not, I don't think. I think he's just following with what we've already talked about. In verse 21, he says, You've heard it said, or you've heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So what's he doing here? And then he goes on about insults and and calling brother names or whatever. I would argue what Jesus is doing is saying, Listen, The point of the commandment, you shall not murder, isn't just to prohibit murder. It's to value somebody. It's to to create a stipulation, a a general guideline to help you as Israel during that time understand that man is created in God's image and that is supposed to uh, change and impact how we act toward our fellow man, right? And so Jesus does this here and, you know, a lot of people read this and they say, well, this is like, going way beyond what they thought. And I just don't think it's, it's as crazy as people often say it is. I think that Jesus knew Deuteronomy really well. Uh, also Exodus, he knew a lot about the Bible, right? But I'm just saying, even in Matthew 4, he just quoted Deuteronomy in the uh, temptation, right? In the temptation narrative. So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy quite often. He's very familiar with it. And I would argue he's basing this even paradigm on this concept, saying, listen, structurally, we understand that when, when people say you shall not murder, you need to understand it goes deeper than that. It's not just murdering. It's, a, it's about treating somebody as an image bearer of God. And so that principle goes well beyond just refraining from murdering someone. Which, by the way, I do hope that you all have avoided murdering people. But I hope that you apply this and understand that using the Mosaic Law means that you're not bound to the letter of the law but the spirit of the law actually will guide and direct the principle into applying to very different applications. Now, one, one last thing I'll say about this, because I did this presentation yesterday, and somebody came up to me and they said, hey, I have some really sharp friends, and, and they, they would say that they agree with everything that you just said, and they would call that theonomy. They would call it general equity theonomy. And there, this is one of the times in which we live, is that, uh, I, I told you that, that theonomy has been attempted as a viewpoint of, of using the law and whatever. But the new class of theonomists uh, that you will no- find on social media and whatever, they, they will backpedal and say that they're general equity theonomists, which essentially means that they're applying the principle of the law, not the letter of the law. And it's funny because... That is gonna, that's going to mean we're, we're basically on point on so many issues then. My, my only thing is the, that's, not, that's not classical theonomy. That's because there's no way you can, and here's the big difference, is that there's no way you can legislate wisdom like that. There, uh, to, put it, to put it this way, the law teaches restitution for uh, like uh, Exodus 21. When you steal an ox, you are to pay that, pay that back uh, fourfold, fivefold. Uh, and so, yeah, restitution. But should I mandate that everybody else pays back a certain amount? Or should that vary from context to context? I remember when I was young, I smashed into a, 
uh, a car, and my dad made me pay back what was owed for that, right? But should I mandate uh, a law that says on you as a fellow believer, if you did this, then you must pay this amount of dollars or this percentage? Well, that's going to change based on some circumstantial items, right? And so that's the difference is that the law, as it was written, was very clear. If this happens, this is the 100% amount. But now the change, the big change, I would argue, is that it's no longer the binding nature. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. And it governs us with wisdom. And it's kind of the principle of giving. Giving is another good example of that. In the Old Testament, it was very specific about what you had to give and what you had to tithe. But now in the New Testament era, we give, in the words of Paul, as each one has purposed in his heart. Right? So there's a wisdom that tells us, yes, this is what you should do, but, but whether you give $20 $20,000, that's going to depend on certain circumstances, right? So that's the big difference is that uh, theonomists often want to uh, put everything into law, but my argument would be that that's not actually possible because of how things have changed uh, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So anyway, there's a lot uh, more we could talk about that, but that's our time. I will uh, put up here, so this is for further study, I've done... A few podcasts and uh, blog articles on subjects like this. So if you want uh, kind of my summary of those things, you can go to BibleSojourner.com or PeterGaming.com. Uh, and then at, on the academic side of things, David Dorsey has an article, The Law of Moses and the Christian. Very high-quality stuff. It's available free PDF online. You can just search for that. And then Tom Schreiner and Brian Rossner have two really uh, high high quality academic books as well on that. So that's all I have for you. Uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Well, if you made it this far into the episode, thanks. I hope it was worth listening to. The audio quality was obviously substandard. Even the intro and the outro I've had to record in different places that don't have the same acoustical effects. But I've been busy traveling around this week and so I just wanted to make something available for you if you are needing a little meditation on the Mosaic Law. So hopefully it's been helpful. You can always reach out to me through the contact form on my website, petergaiman.com. You can also check out the conference website, shepherds360.org where you can access some of the conference schedule and then, Lord willing, the audio files will be available there at some point in the future. And you can always check out the seminary at shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.